So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We are going to be in Matthew 17, uh, verses 1 through 8 today. And over the past couple of weeks, Wayne has been taking us through um, a series of some of his favorite Bible stories. So I get to share with you one of mine, and it is the story of Christ's transfiguration. And so I'm going to give you, I guess, a little uh, Pastor Brady history. Uh, between fifth and ninth grade, I went to a Christian private school. And in fifth grade, one of my fondest memories was we were tasked with uh, presenting a skit based off of a story in the Bible. And so a lot of the kids at fifth grade, they're picking things like, you know, David and Goliath, Jesus feeds the 5,000, things that are uh, more generally well-known for a fifth grade audience. But me being extra, as the kids say, I decided I wanted to do something that nobody else would probably want to take, and that was the uh, story of Christ's transfiguration. Now, we were put in groups of three, and before you ask, how did we do this story with three people? I don't know. I don't remember. I just remember saying, we're doing the mountain transfiguration, and I don't want to be Jesus because being Jesus seems like it's a lot of responsibility, which is true. Being Jesus is a lot of responsibility. So even at the age of 11, I kind of at least knew that much. Now, the reason that I think that this story of Christ's transfiguration has always fascinated me is because we are naturally interested and drawn to things that, that we do not necessarily understand. We look for things that are bigger and brighter, better and faster, and this is just kind of hardwired into us. And how do we know this for sure? Um, because, be honest, how many of you still have the original iPhone? None of you have the original iPhone because you want the next best thing. Or if you're a Samsung person or whatever, you get the next best Samsung. And so we're naturally looking for bigger, brighter, and better things. We want more and more because there's something that is wired in us that desires the next best thing or the things that we perceive to be the best. Now, unfortunately, the things that we perceive to be the best does not always turn out to be the best thing. Thing. In fact, it might be the total opposite. Now, when we get to the story of Christ's transfiguration, what we see is a man, Simon Peter, who thinks that he wants one thing, even though the greatest possible thing is right in front of him. So what we're about to read is that Peter has his eyes set on a moment when he could have had his eyes set on eternity because glory was standing right in front of him. So what I want us to do this morning is to address three body parts in a way. And how we're going to do this, I want to make sure our minds are set towards eternity. I want our eyes set on the only thing that matters. And I want our hearts set to carry our cross in full expectation of the coming glory of the Lord. So we're looking at our minds, our eyes, and our hearts this morning. So here's what happens. We're going to start in Matthew 17, uh, verse 1. Go to verse 8. We read, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. 
What we see in this moment is the visible manifestation of the glory of God. In this moment, we see Moses, the great leader of the Old Testament, Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament, standing before Jesus, who was the sovereign Lord of all, the Son of God Most High. And as you can see, there's three degrees of glory that we see. Moses, he reflected the glory of God. The law reflects the glory of God. Elijah is the prophet. He proclaimed the glory of God. But here, in Jesus, the glory of God is revealed. So, I may have shared this before, but in this moment, both Moses and Elijah are getting more than what they ever would have imagined, what they ever would have thought of asking for. And so we see this back in Exodus 33:18. Moses asked the Lord for one thing. He asked for one thing because he's been given this great task of leading the people of Israel. And so what he asks is he says, Lord, show me your glory. So how does the Lord respond to this? In Exodus 33, 19-23 we read, And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And that's exactly what the Lord does. He takes Moses, he hides him behind a rock, and Moses looks, and he sees the back of the Lord. And from this small glimpse alone, we later hear that Moses' face glowed and radiated the glory of God. So as Moses stands on the mountain in Matthew 17, what is it that he is seeing? At this moment, he's not seeing the back of a mountain. He's not seeing the back of God. What he is seeing is the glory of God through Jesus Christ. He's seeing it face to face. So I wonder if in this moment, if Jesus you know, says, Hey, Mo, do you remember what you asked my dad all those years ago, the thing that you wanted to see? Well, here it is. Everything that you wanted, everything that you were asking for, it is right here, right in front of you. But Moses is not the only one that has an experience on a mountaintop with the glory of God. Elijah has one, too. And if uh, you, you don't remember this story, uh, if you're a teenager, come to YC Week, because we're going to talk about it on Wednesday. So, or no, Friday. Yes, Friday. So come Friday. Come Wednesday, too. Come any day. I don't care. I do care, but don't. So... <laughs> Do you remember what happens with Elijah? There's two mountains in his life. There's Mount Horeb and there's Mount Carmel. On Mount Horeb, it's that uh, big display between the prophets of Baal and the Lord, where the Lord uh, just has this amazing moment of bringing fire down on the altar. The prophets of Baal are put to death, and Elijah thinks, yes, this is the moment. This is where the nation turns their hearts back to the Lord. But we know from that moment that that doesn't happen, because Queen Jezebel basically says to Elijah, uh, Elijah, if I find you, you're as good as dead. And this just terrifies Elijah so much that he uh, runs for miles, for days, to another mountain, to Mount Horeb. And he gets to this mountain, and while he's in this cave, the Lord says to Elijah, go stand outside on the mountainside. Elijah goes out, and, and you, know what, you, you probably know what happens. There's this great wind that shakes the whole place, but the Lord's not in the wind. There's an earthquake, but the Lord's not in the earthquake. There's a fire that falls from heaven, but the Lord's not in the fire. But finally, in the calm after the storm, there's a still, small whisper. 
and there is the Lord. You see, what happens to Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, it surpasses the wind, it surpasses the earthquakes, the fire, and the whispers. Where was the God that Elijah was hoping to find on Mount Horeb? He was right in front of him, and it's not just in a whisper. He's talking to him like you and I talk to one another. He's seeing the divine glory of God right in front of him. And David Platt, he wrote that Jesus was not merely reflecting or proclaiming the divine glory. Jesus was the revelation of divine glory. Jesus doesn't just mirror or imitate the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. But in this moment, Peter does something that you and I are often guilty of doing. He had his mindset on something momentary when he should have had his mindset towards that which is eternal. So if we look back at verse 4, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. You see, in Peter's mind, he's either uh, babbling, which is possible, because what do you say in a moment like this? Or there's another side of it where he's thinking, this is the moment that Israel has been looking forward to. This is the day where we can say, so long, Rome, it is our time to come back on top of things. And so he's thinking, who is better to lead this rebellion against the Roman Empire, so basically the world, than Moses, who's already led a people out of one crazy empire, Elijah, a prophet who has already you know, stood out amongst this horrible empire before, and Jesus, the one who has done these amazing and incredible things. Who better to lead a people than these three men? But this was not the point of the transfiguration. I believe there's two primary purposes for the transfiguration, and uh, Luke gives us the first one, Moses and Elijah, that came to speak to Jesus about his departure and the things he was about to accomplish through his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. And the second purpose was for the disciples so that they could see his glory and believe that he was not just another Moses. He wasn't just another Elijah. Here was someone entirely different. Here is God in the flesh. Now, I don't know if you know this, but one chapter earlier in Matthew 16, Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asks them, hey, who do people say that I am? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And his disciples, they give him a bunch of different answers. They say, some, uh, some people think that you're John the Baptist. Other people think you're Elijah. Some people say uh, Jeremiah or another prophet. And Peter is the only one that gets it right. Because when Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What's happening on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Lord is showing to Peter, I'm not another Elijah. I'm not another Moses. I'm not another prophet. I am not any Old Testament saint. I am exactly who you proclaimed me to be. See, Jesus stands out from all the rest. J.C. Ryle, he said that Moses and Elijah were great men in their day, but Peter and his companions were to remember that in nature, dignity, and office, they were far below Christ. He was the true son. They were the stars depending daily on his light. He was the root. They were the branches. He was the master. They were the servants. Their goodness was all derived. His was original and his own. Let them honor Moses and the prophets as holy men, but if they would be saved, they must take Christ alone for their master. You see, Peter was suffering from a problem that you and I frequently suffer from as well. Our view of the things of God is often far too small and far too narrow. See, what Peter is saying, he's saying, let's make an earthly kingdom here. Let's make the, the purpose of our lives happen here. Let's have fulfillment be right here. 
But Christ was showing something far greater that was to come. You see, I'm afraid that we might live in this time where our view of God is far too little. Now, I understand how the world sees God. It's very clear how, how our world, not just today, but the world has always seen God. They've never had a high opinion of him. I'm worried about, is, are we as the church, what's our view of God? I'm afraid that maybe our view of God might be too small. And so if you want to know what I think one of the biggest dangers facing the church of today is, it's those that make up the church who think way too little of God or try to place him within some constraints or these man-sized expectations. You see, the biggest problem facing the church right now, it's not politicians, it's not big government, it's not coronavirus, it's not Jeff Bezos or Microsoft or the Middle East or socialism. It's people that claim to live in pursuit of the glory of God, but they stop that pursuit at a level that seems feasible to them. I will tell us that the view of God in our head is far too small. We like to put constraints around him and think that he can only do what we think he is capable of doing, but that is not the God of Scripture. The God that we claim to serve is the same God that sent armies fleeing in terror, the same God that parted the sea, the same God that crippled some of the most powerful empires in the world and created the cosmos just by speaking them into existence. The greatest problem facing the church comes from the inside. It comes from people that are so concerned about what they can't do that they lose sight of what God can do. A church that is set with their minds on the here and now will suffer from the same problem that Peter suffered from. Are our minds as the church set on the God that is there? Not a God that we kind of make up in our own heads. Not a God that, that the media and the world tells us we should worship. Is our God in our heads the true God of Scripture? Or are we just looking for things that are temporary instead of things that are eternal. What we need as the church is that Matthew 17, 5 experience. We need a moment where we fall on our face in fear and awe because the presence of God is in our midst. So we'll go back to those verses. Jesus was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Now, why is it that the voice of God the Father causes fear and dread among the disciples. What is it about that voice? Because remember, Peter is like the most hard-headed man to ever exist. Like, I love the man. His letter's great. I just finished a series on it a few months ago. The dude is hard-headed. He's willing to go and take the Roman army down himself in like five to six chapters when Jesus gets arrested. And yet, here we see him being one of the first ones to like put the head in the sand. What is it about this moment that causes such fear for these men? And the answer is because sinful man cannot stand in the presence of God. Think back to Genesis 3. What do Adam and Eve do after they sin? Where do they go? They're not running up to God saying, hey, we messed up. They're hiding. They're, they're, they're covering their shame. They're running away. Think of Exodus 3. When the Lord reveals himself to Moses, what happens to Moses? In verse 6, we read, and the Lord said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now you might say, well, that's kind of normal for Moses. Moses was always running. He just ran a chapter earlier after he killed that Egyptian. Yeah, but he also had the, the same kind of strength to stand up for what was right despite that. But there's something different in this moment. And this isn't the only time that this happens in the book of Exodus. When the, uh, the Israelites are given the Ten Commandments, what happens? 
Exodus 20, 18 through 19. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and of the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. That didn't really happen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. The voice of the Lord caused an entire nation to tremble and beg Moses to be the only one that would go before the presence of God. You see, all throughout Scripture, we see this happening. This is not just a three-and-done sort of thing. I was just reading this morning, even in my quiet time, about the, book, or about the birth of Samson in the book of Judges. And even Samson's parents, when they realized that it was the angel of the Lord that comes before them, they're afraid they're going to die. They say the presence of the Lord has been here, but the only thing that they get encouraged by is they say, well, the Lord would not have you know, taken our sacrifice if we were going to die. See, Spurgeon said that we cannot bear for God to come too near us, for we are such frail earthen vessels that if he reveals his glory too much within us, we are ready to break. I believe that there should be a holy fear and a holy awe that comes over Christ's church when it comes to God the Father. Now, some of us might think, well, why would I want to come to a God like that? If I can't even be in his presence without feeling like I'm going to die, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to follow a God with that kind of reputation? Well, I think there's a good way to kind of explain it. One of my favorite book series is uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. I love C.S. Lewis. I think he's one of the greatest minds of the past however many hundred years. Love C.S. Lewis. I look forward to the day when Benji and I get to read it together. Um, and there's this moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that I think helps us connect the dots. In the book, um, you have Peter, Lucy, and Susan, or if you're movie watchers, you have three actors and a CGI beaver. Um, and there's this part where they're, they're talking about Aslan, who's the great lion. And, you know, C.S. Lewis, he uses Aslan to represent uh, Jesus. And, and Susan is getting a little bit worried when she's hearing about Aslan. And then she gets even more worried when she finds out that he's a lion. And not just like, you know, like a little Simba lion from The Lion King, but he's like this great, mighty, powerful lion. And so she asks Mr. Beaver, well, is he safe? And you see, Mr. Beaver's reply is what I think helps us find the answer regarding the fear of the Lord. Um, he says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. See, that's the answer. Who said anything about him being safe, but he's good? He's the king. And that is where our confidence to come before the Lord comes from. No one said anything about following the Lord being safe. In the eyes of the world, a life devoted to Christ is anything but safe. It's stupid. But we know that he is good. And so there's another example that I kind of have. I think our ability to trust people, doesn't it come predominantly from how well we know somebody else? Like the amount of trust that we give to someone, it, it depends largely on how well you know someone. And so I have two great friends in this world that I know that I would trust with my life. I married one of them, but the other friend that I trust more than anything is my friend Brendan. So we met at Liberty. We were roommates for a number of years. We just clicked uh, very easily. They were supposed to be here this morning, actually, but he uh, has a cold, and so they did not come, which is sad, because I had this whole thing with him, and I was going to be like, hey, Brendan, you're my best friend. But uh, So I was the best man at his wedding. We were, we've been friends for a long time, talk all the time. And uh, he is the closest thing that I have to a brother in this life. Now, if Brendan came running through those doors in the back there right now, and all he told me was that he needed the key to my house, I would give it to him without even thinking about it. Also because the carabiner on my, you know, keys are broken, so it'd be really easy just to flip it to him. Um, but I would give it to him, no problem. And you might think, well, why would you do that? You don't know what he's going to do. You don't know him. What if he takes something? What if he does this or that? And the thing is, I don't need to know what he's doing because I know him. 
I don't need to know all the answers because I know him and I trust him. I know the type of person that he is. And if I can do that with my friend, why can we not do that with the Lord? You see, the thing is, I don't need to know the reason for everything that God is doing right now because I know him. I don't need to know what his plan is with coronavirus. I don't need to know what his plan is with uh, the political landscape, with, with all this other stuff going on, with it's like the Middle East or whatever it is. I don't need to know exactly what he's doing because I know him. And I know that he is good. And I know that he is faithful. I know him as my father, as my savior, and the sovereign Lord of all things. And because I know him in his character, as much as I may want to know some things, I don't need to know all things because I'm ultimately satisfied in my knowing of him. And because I know that he is good, I can be confident that he is doing all things for the good of those that love him. Maybe the reason that some of you have had such a hard time trusting the Lord during this difficult season is because he's still a stranger to you. Maybe it's been so hard over the last, like, and I will gladly admit, it has been a rough 500 plus days, right? Like, it's been rough. But at the same time, isn't there this extra peace in knowing that God has not abandoned his throne? That he's not just, like, letting the world just kind of go off into oblivion while he's out playing golf? Like, he's good. And so there's this extra comfort. He's a God of peace. And so I think that maybe if we struggle in these times, it's maybe because we don't really know him as well as we could. Our hope and our confidence comes from the knowledge that he is good and he is the king of kings. And sometimes we need the Lord to drop us flat on our face so that when we look up, all we will be able to see is his son. Now, verse 8 might be one of my favorite verses, not just in uh, this chapter, but in the gospel, or in all the gospels. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. See, I long for the day when we as the church are content with Christ alone. I, uh, I, I noticed the other, last night actually, do you all realize what the church is going through right now in Afghanistan? Like, do you, have you read some of the things? It's, it's not looking good. Um, there's a, uh, I read it last night, there's a number of church leaders, Christian church leaders, that received letters from the Taliban. And basically, in the not-so-nice way, the letter basically just said, uh, hi, we're the Taliban. We know where you are, and we know what you're doing. And what these leaders said is that despite the threats, they're not going anywhere. And so what this means is that unless something remarkable happens, unless something changes, if they are not dead already, this is a death sentence for them. And yet they're saying, we are going to stand firm. These are men and women who truly are content with only having Jesus. And so I wonder, are we the same way? I think we get so used to this idea of, you know, when we go to church, we have air conditioning, we have heat, we have comfortable seats, we have good music, we have lights, we have all these things. But let's say those things were taken away. All we had was Jesus. We don't even have the security of being able to lock our door, but all we have is Jesus. Is that enough for us? Because what we see with our brothers and sisters around the world is that that is their reality. They don't have these things, and yet here we are as a, the 21st century, and I don't mean just us, I mean the American church at large. We are so just dependent on these 
physical wants and desires that we have, and we have completely lost sight of what it really means to only see Jesus. If we want to be a faithful witness for Christ, we have to be able to let all these things slide away and be content with only having him. Is the word of Christ enough for us? When the day comes, if we lose our car or our job or our house, spouse, kids, if we close our eyes for a moment and if we open them, if all we had was Christ, would that be enough? Is Jesus your everything? I know that some of us have have spent our entire existence running from the presence of God. I think we have two uh, kind of default modes when it comes to his presence. We either grit our teeth at him in anger or we're hiding from him in shame. And there's this compromise, right, of Jesus taking on that guilt, taking on that pain on himself. Christ died so that dividing curtain between you and the Lord would be torn down. Christ bore the wrath of God so that we would not have to. And the author of Hebrews, he writes that, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We do not need to feel shame or fear any longer. We can lay that aside, we can lay sin aside, and we can look to Jesus alone. And when we do that, we can do it with the confidence that we will see his glory. But if we want to see the glory of God, something vitally important must happen first. We need to take up our cross before we will ever see the glory of Christ. Now, I want you to turn real quick, or, you know, I guess if it's, you just look at the screen, I guess. Uh, look at Matthew 16. I want you to notice something that Jesus says uh, right before this moment of his transfiguration. Matthew writes, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." Now, I know there's a, different, a couple of different ways you can interpret what Jesus is saying there at the end. Some people say, oh, that uh, seeing the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, it's about the transfiguration, it makes sense. It's the very next chapter. Some people say it's the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Some people say it comes at the end of time. However you interpret it, um, that's not the big draw of what I'm getting at here. Isn't it ironic that six days after Jesus says this, Peter, James, and John see what he's talking about? They see the glory of Christ. You see, this reiterates the danger of following Christ, but it also emphasizes the reward that comes through doing it. It isn't until after Christ tells his followers that they must deny themselves and take up their cross that they see his glory. So we have to ask, have you denied yourself? Have you taken up your cross? Have you left everything to follow Jesus? The only way to see his glory is by doing that first. Is there pain in following Jesus? Yes, there's pain. Is there, is there danger? Absolutely. Could you die from following Christ? Yes, in a way you already have to because you have to put your sin to death in order to follow Jesus. But is it worth it? 
Yes, because the reward is far beyond anything that we might imagine. Understand that by following Christ now, faithfully serving Him, you will see the glory of God, period. You're going to see it in all of His glory. You're going to see His majesty. And Jonathan Edwards, he said that God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of Him is our proper and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here, better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountains. These are drops, but God is the ocean. And so... I think that when we talk about the glory of God, sometimes we don't know exactly what we mean by that. What is it exactly that we are looking forward to? And so I was trying to think of a definition. I'm actually, while I'm waiting for the first book that I write to be never published, I'm writing a second book on the glory of God. And uh, it just kind of keeps me busy, I guess. Uh, and so I was trying to figure out exactly what do we mean when we speak of God doing things for his glory or the glory of God, and this is what I kind of came up with, it's the manifestation of all that God is and all that God does in the ultimate expression of his perfection. Does that make sense? It is the manifestation, everything that God is. The glory of God means that God is going to do what only God can do to the best ability that God is able to do it, and that is eternal. It is the ultimate expression of his perfections. All that he is and all that he does is infinitely glorious, and one day we will see him in those perfections. But how do we see it? Well, we pick up our cross and we look to Christ alone. You will never see the fullness of God's glory until you pick up that cross. See, when we take up our cross and follow Jesus, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we will see his glory. That's what Paul is getting at in Romans 8 when he says, you know, those that God has called, they will be glorified, or they are glorified, because he's saying it almost in the past tense. Well, it is in the past tense. And he's saying that all of it is so sure. Our assurance of salvation is so sure, it's as if it has already happened. So what is stopping us from this glorious pursuit? Christ has called us to him. Aren't we to follow? See, we were down in the dirt. We're lost in our sins, afraid to stand before his presence. But now we have repented of our sins. We've turned to him in faith, and he says to us, rise and have no fear. The sweetest comfort in life and death is knowing that we belong to Jesus. The fears and worries that we had, he casts away. Uh, Calvin, he once said that, for although the disciples were frightened by the majesty of God, their minds wandered off seeking for men. But when Christ sweetly raised them up, they saw him alone. For if there flourishes in us the consolation with which Christ cures our fears, all the foolish affections which drag us hither and thither vanish away. What are our eyes set on? What are our hearts directed towards? If the only thing that you are concentrated on is here and now, you're going to be disappointed that this is the best that it's going to be. You're going to be trying to prolong a mountaintop experience that is not going to last. You will always be searching for more, longing for something better, but coming up short. But if our eyes are set on Christ, if he's the center of all that we do, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we will see his glory. And R.C. Sproul, uh, right before he died, he said, when we enter into glory and our eyes are overwhelmed by the brilliance of the light and we try to find the source of that light, we'll see Jesus, not for a moment, but forever. 
in the blinding glory of God. We miss the transfiguration the first time, but we won't miss it the next time. The day is coming when we are going to stand before his throne, and I pray that you'll be there with me to see it. Uh, And if you aren't sure if you're going to see it, the best piece of advice that I can give you is to pick up your cross. Follow him, and then we know those that are faithful to him will see him in glory. They will see his majesty. They will see and they will embrace the glory of God for all eternity. We're not going to have to settle for a mountaintop moment that's fading. We're going to be able to see him forever. And with that, we can uh, sing praises to the Lord every moment of our lives because we know he is good. Let's pray together. God, I hope that we are not satisfied with a moment that's going to fade away or a moment that's uh, passing. I pray that our ultimate pursuit is your glory, seeing you. And I'm hopeful that one day we will see you. We're going to see not your side, we're going to see a mountain, we're going to see you face to face. And I long for that day. I pray that everyone in here is looking forward to that day when they see your majesty and your splendor. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen.